You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. This fall, we're going to be studying the book of Daniel together because Daniel's got a lot to say to believers in our day and age. Daniel teaches us to remember that no matter what happens in global or national politics, the Lord is on his throne and he is guiding history to its conclusion, to the eternal triumph of Christ. And so we can have hope no matter what we see happening around us because the Lord reigns. But Daniel also teaches us how we're to live in this rebellious world. This world is not our home, believing friends. We are strangers in a strange land. We are exiles. And the book of Daniel teaches Christians how to live as exiles because the main figures in this book, Daniel and his friends, are themselves in exile. And it's this biblical theme of exile that we're going to study today. We're going to trace this theme across the Bible And as we do, we're going to learn some things about God's character. We're going to learn how, in some ways, the Old and New Testaments come together and point in the same direction, and yet at the same time operate a bit differently. It'll teach us about who we are as believers and how we should interact with the culture around us. So in fact, I think this is going to prove to be a very important study for us to consider the biblical theme of exile. Now today we're going to look at two points. First, we're going to look at the theme of exile in the Old Testament as it was prophesied and then as it happened to the Jews about 2,600 years ago. And then second, we're going to examine the theme of exile in the New Testament, and we're going to learn about the believer's relationship to the world around us. All right, well, let's begin with our first point, which is the theme of exile in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the story about the relationship between God and Israel. And much of this story focuses on two concepts the promised land, and the law of Moses. And that's where we're going to begin today. If you've got a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 12. And as we pick up, we pick up right after God has judged humanity at Babel, fragmenting humanity into many different nations. But the God who judges is also the God who shows mercy. And now God moves in mercy. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. God's mercy here begins with his election, his choice of one man, Abram. Now God's choice was not a result of any virtue within Abram, In fact, Genesis 38 suggests that Abram's family worshipped idols. No, God's choice here had to do with God's loving character and God's own sovereign purposes, not any greatness within Abram. And so God chooses Abram. And God calls Abram to relocate himself. And God tells Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. That's why we can say this is an act of mercy. Because God is intending to bless all those nations that he just judged at Babel through Abram. And then Abram responded by obeying. He moved. He had faith in the Lord. Genesis 12, 5 says, When they came to the land of Canaan, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. 
So God designates the land of Canaan as the promised land. The land that one day will belong to Abram's offspring. And note that's a singular word, offspring. Now God repeats this promise again later in chapter 17 of Genesis, 17.3. God said to Abram, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Verse 8, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. Now, the promise that God makes here is even better than the promise he made in chapter 12. In chapter 12, God said that Abram would father one nation. Now he will be the father of many nations. And God sovereignly changes Abram's name to reinforce this promise. Abram becomes Abraham, the father of a multitude. And God, again, swears to give to Abraham and to his offspring, singular, the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. So that's the promise. Now, Galatians chapter 3 tells us that these promises ultimately point to one particular descendant of Abraham, the Lord Jesus. Galatians 3.16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So these promises point to Jesus. Through Jesus, every nation of the earth will be blessed. Through Jesus, a vast number of descendants from every nation have become Abraham's descendants. For Galatians 3 also says, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And it's ultimately to Jesus that the promised land will come as an everlasting possession. It is from Jerusalem that Jesus will reign when he establishes his kingdom. And all those who trust in Jesus, all those who are regarded by God as being in Christ, will inherit the blessings of these promises. That's what Galatians 3 says. But God had more promises for the promised land than to simply keep it in abeyance until Jesus came at the end and to give it to him. God intended to do some other things with the promised land in the interim. And indeed, when Abraham died, God appeared to Abraham's son Isaac and repeated this promise. When Isaac died, God appeared to his son Jacob and repeated this promise. And more than that, God again used his sovereignty to rename Jacob as Israel. And God made this promise to Israel in Genesis 35, 12. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you. And I will give this land to your descendants after you. God gave the promised land to Israel and his descendants. Now, the Israelites would not take possession of the promised land for several centuries after Genesis 35. Not until they'd been delivered from slavery in Egypt. Not until they'd wandered in the wilderness. Not until the time of Joshua. But God promised to give Israel the land. More than that, God told Israel some things about how they were to occupy this land. And one of the things that God told them was that their occupancy of the promised land was conditional. Leviticus 25:23, God says, The land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. The promised land ultimately belongs to the Lord. He never gave up his title to the land. He would allow Israel to live on the promised land so long as they kept his law, the law of Moses, the law given at Sinai, 
beginning with the Ten Commandments and followed by the other 603 commandments. Israel kept the law, they could keep the land. And as they obeyed, they would enjoy God's abundant material blessing. This is a big difference between ancient Israel and the modern church. The church, according to Ephesians 1, has access to every spiritual blessing. But ancient Israel was promised material blessings for obedience. So Deuteronomy 28 verse 1 says, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Blessed shall you be in the city and in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, your basket and your kneading bowl. Their obedience would generate material prosperity. But God warned Israel throughout Leviticus and Deuteronomy that if they rebelled against the Lord and did not keep his law, then terrible judgments would fall upon them. Disease, drought, military defeat, and more. And if despite all that, Israel still persisted in unrepentant disobedience, ultimately they would forfeit the promised land. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 22, God says, You shall keep all my statutes and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. Persistent disobedience would end with exile, the loss of the promised land, and the end of Israelite sovereignty. The two clearest warnings about this are given in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. I'll read the one from Leviticus 26. God says, If you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I will myself discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste and make your sanctuaries desolate. I myself will devastate the land, and I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation. What a horrible threat. God says, I'm going to bring foreign invasion upon you. You're going to suffer a siege. You're going to starve so much that you're going to resort to eating your own children. There will be mass slaughter, the destruction of cities, the end of your kingdom. God says this is the ultimate sanction for disobedience. Exile is the ultimate threat in the Old Testament. And in Deuteronomy 4, God told the Israelites that one day this terrible fate would befall them. But in his mercy and faithfulness, God at the same time promised that exile would not be the end of Israel. Chapter 4, verse 30 of Deuteronomy, God says, when all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. God promised that Israel would never be finally destroyed. But that truth would not stop God from sending Israel into exile for a long and painful season after they persisted for centuries in unrepentant disobedience. Now, the fulfillment of this particular threat is one of the major themes that dominates the historical and prophetic books of the Old Testament. And the fulfillment of this threat is the specific background to the book of Daniel. So we're going to spend some time now learning about how the Israelites wound up in exile. 
and we're going to pick up the history about 700 years after the Exodus, around the year 730 BC. At this point, the Israelites live in two different kingdoms, the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. Judah was uh, ruled by the descendants of King David, and some of these descendants were godly and others were quite wicked. Meanwhile, in the north, Israel was ruled by a number of different dynasties throughout its history, but the one thing they all had in common was that all of their kings were terribly wicked and idolatrous. Now, as we begin in 730 BC, both the northern and southern kingdoms are ruled by evil kings, and these kings are at war. Israel at the north and her ally Syria, not Assyria, but just regular old Syria, these two are in a tag team attacking Judah, and they're doing quite well. The Judah's lost a lot of territory, and Jerusalem finds itself besieged. And in response, the king of Judah, Ahaz, in 2 Kings 16, we read, sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz is desperate. His kingdom is collapsing around him. Where does he turn? Does he ask God for help, the God who made a covenant with his ancestor David? No. Instead, he turns to politics, and he seeks help from the mightiest nation in the world, Assyria. And he says to Assyria, if you defeat my enemies, I will become your underling and I will give you lots of money. Ahaz invites the big dog to come and invade his own yard. And at first he gets what he wants. Assyria destroys Syria like Ahaz wanted. Then Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. Said a moment ago, the northern kingdom of Israel throughout its entire history continually rebelled against the Lord. And so the Lord made good on his word, and he sent those Israelites into exile. 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 6 says, In the ninth year of Hosheah, king of Israel, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria. The northern kingdom was wiped off the map, and its people were enslaved. God then explains why this happened in 2 Kings 17. He says this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God and had walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. In other words, he's saying they acted like the Canaanites that God made war on in the book of Joshua. They did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger, and they served idols. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel, and he removed them from out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. And God kept his word, and he exiled Israel. Well, what about the southern kingdom? What about Judah? Fast forward a few years. Now Ahaz is dead, and his son Hezekiah reigns. And Hezekiah is generally a good king. He's a godly man. But here he slips into some worldliness. 
Hezekiah is tired of the arrangement his dad cut with Assyria. He's tired of being an underling that pays them lots of money. And so in 2 Kings 18, we read that Hezekiah rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Now, Assyria was a pretty mighty empire at this time. How does Hezekiah intend to defeat Assyria? Well, he could have asked God for help. God is stronger than Assyria. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he tries to solve his problems by looking to the world of politics. Like his father, he tries to form some alliances. So he allies himself first with the strongest country nearby him, which is Egypt. Now, the prophet Isaiah had warned Hezekiah against forming an alliance with Egypt. Isaiah chapter 20, verse 4, God says, The king of Assyria shall lead away the Egyptian captives. He said, Egypt won't help you defeat Assyria. But Hezekiah trusted Egypt. And what happened? Well, the Egyptians participated in one battle in Hezekiah's rebellion in 701 BC. They lost, and their soldiers were taken captive, just like God said. All right, well, Hezekiah also tried to form another alliance in his rebellion. In Isaiah chapter 39, verse 1, we read that at that time, Merodach Baladon, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. All right, now here we're going to talk about Babylon, which you probably can't see clearly, but it's a, it's a big circle right here in the middle of Assyria. Babylon was a possession of Assyria, but Babylon hated Assyria. They were always trying to rebel because Babylon was an ancient and proud city, dating the whole way back to the Tower of Babel. And here the king of Babylon reaches out to Hezekiah and he says, let's team up and get rid of Assyria. And Hezekiah likes this idea. And Hezekiah decides he wants to impress his new friends. So in Isaiah 39:2, we read that Hezekiah welcomed the Babylonian envoys gladly, and he showed them his treasure house. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Hezekiah arrogantly reveals the wealth and might of his kingdom to Babylon. He wants to impress them, and he did. He left such an impression that one day the Babylonians will remember that they could make a lot of money if they seized Jerusalem. Now when Isaiah hears about Hezekiah's folly and his faithless political scheming, he confronts the king. But Hezekiah is totally unrepentant. And so we read in Isaiah 39.5, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming. When all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This is the first specific prophecy of the fate that would befall the kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem, that one day they would fall to Babylon. But that was still in the future. In Hezekiah's day, his alliance with Babylon didn't wind up working out either. The Assyrians crushed the Babylonians in 702 BC. And so Hezekiah was quite alone and without allies when the Assyrians finally moved against him in 701 BC. And the Assyrians conquered nearly his entire kingdom. Only when they surrounded Jerusalem did Hezekiah finally turn to God for help. And you know what? God delivered him. 2 Kings 19.35 says, That night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. 
Friends, learn this lesson well. God's people will never be delivered from their difficulties by relying on politics or the wisdom of this world. We will be delivered from crisis only when we declare our dependence on God and when we trust in him alone. But this lesson was lost on Hezekiah's successors. Hezekiah was succeeded by his son Manasseh, one of the most evil men in the entire Bible. We read about him in 2 Kings 21 verse 2. Manasseh did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, for he rebuilt the high places, the idol centers, that Hezekiah had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal, and made an Asherah, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord. He burned his son as an offering, and used fortune-telling and omens, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Manasseh led Judah astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Just terrible idolatry, desecrating the temple of God. Manasseh made Judah worse than the ancient Canaanites. And this sin went on for 55 years. Now, at the end of his life, Manasseh repented. But by then the damage was done. God said in Manasseh's time in 2 Kings 21.11 that because Manasseh has committed these abominations and done more evil than all that the Canaanites did, therefore thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish and I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hands of their enemies. The sentence of exile was pronounced. But it didn't come yet. It wasn't the right time. Well, Manasseh died, and his son Ammon took the throne, and he continued his father's evil ways until he was murdered. But then something surprising happened. Ammon's son Josiah came to the throne at age eight. And this eight-year-old would prove to be the best king that God's people ever had since King David's time. Josiah destroyed the idols that his father worshipped. He repaired the temple of the Lord, and there the book of God's law, which had been lost in the middle of all the idolatry of previous generations, the book of the law was rediscovered. And Josiah led the nation in obedience to God's law. Now, this final moment of godliness was not enough to avert the judgment which God had decreed upon Judah. During this time, the prophet as Huldah declared, thus says the Lord in 2 Chronicles 34, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the curses that are written in the book, remember the curses we read a few minutes ago, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out upon this place and will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, because you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words, you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. In mercy, God spared Judah during the reign of good King Josiah, but the sentence of exile was not repealed. During this time also the prophet Zephaniah spoke, and in his book, God said, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. 
Seek the Lord. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. God was warning his people, calling to them. Exile is coming. Make things right with me. Repent. But God held off the exile until after Josiah was off the throne. But in the year 609 B.C., Josiah made a critical mistake. Josiah stopped thinking about serving God, and he started getting involved in international politics. Now, this time, the map was changing. Assyria, which had been the big dog in world affairs, suddenly found itself in some trouble. Pesky Babylon had again rebelled against Assyria, and this time Babylon had allied themselves with an Iranian people called the Medes. And the Babylonians and the Medes had a lot of success fighting Assyria. And Assyria, in her moment of desperation, uh, formed an alliance with her ancient enemy, Egypt, hoping that Egypt would help preserve her position. It didn't. Assyria's cities fell to Babylon, and Assyria's last surviving army headed west, hoping to regroup and maybe mount a counterattack if they could get some help from the Egyptians. And so the Egyptian army, led by Pharaoh Necho II, went forth to try to help the Assyrians. But to get to the Assyrians, Necho had to march his army through Judah. Well, King Josiah, for some reason, the Bible doesn't specifically tell us, King Josiah decided he wasn't going to allow this to take place. So he decided to stop the Egyptian army. Now, God warned him against this, but he fought the Egyptians anyway, and he was killed in battle. And good King Josiah's death immediately plunged Judah into ruin. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 1 says, The people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. When Jerusalem heard about Josiah's death, they took Josiah's youngest son and sat him on the throne. But tragically with Jehoahaz, the apple had fallen quite far from the tree. 2 Kings 23 says that Jehoahaz did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. He returned to practicing idolatry and iniquity, and his reign was short-lived. 2 Chronicles 36.2 says Jehoahaz reigned three months in Jerusalem. Then the king of Egypt deposed him in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. You might remember that God had promised Israel, if you obey my law, I will set you high above the nations of the earth. But when Israel was in disobedience, it gets kicked around like a soccer ball by the other nations. And that's exactly what happened. Egypt became dominant over Judah. And Egypt kicked Jehoahaz off the throne and dragged him back as a captive to Egypt. And in his place, 2 Chronicles 36, 4 says, The king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Right, now Judah has lost its sovereignty. Egypt is choosing Judah's king. And the Pharaoh humiliates Judah further by giving their king a new name. Remember, giving someone a new name is an act of sovereignty. It was God who renamed Abram and Jacob. Now Pharaoh presumes to rename the king of Judah. And Jehoiakim, this Egyptian puppet, 
rules in Jerusalem. And he is one of the worst kings, maybe the worst after Manasseh and Ammon in the whole Bible. During his reign is when the prophet Habakkuk wrote his book, which we looked at last week. Habakkuk described Jerusalem at that time as a place of violence and injustice. 2 Kings 24 says, Jehoiakim filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not pardon. Violence and evil raged in Jerusalem. But God was on the case. We saw that last week. He was observing and he was preparing to respond. And indeed, that's what we see next. During this time, the Babylonians had, become, had gone on the move. They had begun to expand westward. They had become a major threat to Egypt. They had come in this direction. And in 605, the Babylonian incursion uh, annoyed Egypt so much that they decided to have a major battle to try and stop the advance westward of Babylon. And this became one of the most important battles in world history, the Battle of Carchemish. The Babylonians were led by their crown prince, a man named Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to spend a lot of time with Nebuchadnezzar over the next few weeks. And Nebuchadnezzar thrashed the Egyptians. Babylon established itself as the new world power. And within a few weeks, Nebuchadnezzar actually inherited the throne of Babylon. He became the king. And this signaled that things would soon change for Judah and Jerusalem. And indeed they did. In 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 1, we read that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up. That is, he came up against Jerusalem. And we read what happens next in the first verses of the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. Then Nebuchadnezzar commanded his chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, who were competent to stand in the king's palace, to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. For the first time in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes against Jerusalem. And for the first time, he leaves with captives. It won't be the last. And this time he takes the best and the brightest of the nobility of Judah, including Daniel, the figure that we're going to focus on over the next several weeks. Now, these first captives had it the best. They were to become high officials of the Babylonian Empire, serving in the king's own palace. But we're going to see next week, there was a catch. These captives were expected to renounce their faith and conform themselves to the culture of Babylon. And we're going to see next week how Daniel kept his faith and his integrity in the middle of that pressure. But the first captives were gone. Now back in Jerusalem, 2 Kings 24 says after this first war, Jehoiakim became Nebuchadnezzar's servant for three years. But then Jehoiakim turned and rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. He launches a second war against Babylon. And in this second war, Jehoiakim got more than he bargained for. 2 Kings 24, 2 says, And the Lord sent against Jehoiakim bands of the Chaldeans, the Syrians, the Moabites, and the Ammonites, and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Babylon and her allies defeated Jehoiakim. 2 Chronicles 36, 6 says that Nebuchadnezzar bound Jehoiakim in chains to take him to Babylon. He was kicked off the throne. And in his place, 2 Chronicles 36, 8 says, Jehoiachin, his son, reigned. 
Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Another puppet king is installed, young Jehoiachin, and he's also an evil man, and he also has a brief reign. In 597 BC, we read in 2 Kings 24.10 that the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem and the city was besieged again. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon. The king of Babylon took him prisoner. And he carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. We're not sure why Babylon turned on their puppet King Jehoiachin, but they did. And the second siege of Jerusalem was brief but terrible. We'll see some of its horror in just a minute. But due to Jehoiachin's quick surrender, Jerusalem survived. Yet it was plundered. And for the second time, people from Jerusalem were taken away as slaves. This time, all but the poorest people were enslaved. And those who were taken away were relocated to live in small farming communities along the Kabar River, which today is in Iraq. One of the exiles who was taken there was the prophet Ezekiel. And God would speak to the exiles by the Kabar River through Ezekiel over the coming years. But while the Jews were allowed to live as subsistence farmers by the Kabar River, they were miserable. They missed their homes. And more than that, they lamented the terrible losses they had suffered in the siege of Jerusalem. One of the saddest sections in the Bible describes their plight in exile. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you've done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. It's a horrific image. The captive Jews here are crying out to God for justice because they had seen their own little babies taken by the Babylonians and smashed against rocks. And they say to God, have you seen this? Will you not avenge the suffering that we've suffered? And they languished being cut off from their land and their homes. But while they had been deported, Jerusalem still stood. 2 Kings 24, 17 says, And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Babylon puts a new puppet on the throne. And as Egypt had done in the past, Nebuchadnezzar humiliates Judah by showing his dominance in renaming the king. More than that, 2 Chronicles 36, 13 indicates that when Zedekiah was crowned, Nebuchadnezzar required him to swear an oath of allegiance to him in the name of the Lord. But Zedekiah was one more horrible king and a string of horrible kings. 2 Chronicles 36, 11 says, He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. Now, Jeremiah had been an active prophet for several years leading up to Zedekiah's reign. But he does some of his best work while Zedekiah is on the throne. And through Jeremiah, God made a final appeal to his people. Jeremiah 27, 6. 
God said, I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. If any nation or kingdom will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, I will punish that nation until I have consumed it by his hand. Do not listen to your prophets who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for that is a lie that they are prophesying to you, with the result that you will be removed far from your land, and I will drive you out, and you will perish. It's the threat of exile. But any nation that will serve him, I will leave on its own land, declares the Lord. Even still, God brought a word of kindness to his people. He said, I won't exile you yet if you will but serve Nebuchadnezzar. But Zedekiah rejected Jeremiah's messages. In 2 Chronicles 36, 13, we read that he rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He broke his vow to the Lord. And according to Ezekiel, Nebuchadnezzar responded by laying siege to Jerusalem for two years. Two years of hell on earth, of disease, of starvation. The horrendous scene inside the besieged city is described in Lamentations 4. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became food during the destruction. This is what the Lord had pro prophesied in Leviticus 26 to the last detail. If you persist in rebellion, you will suffer foreign invasion and siege and horrible starvation resulting in cannibalism. And this siege ends the same way God had told them it would. The city fell, there was a mass murder, and the survivors were scattered from the land. 2 Chronicles 36, 14 says, Zedekiah stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people, likewise, were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and his sons. His third siege of Jerusalem was the last. The city was destroyed in 586 B.C and most of its survivors were taken to Babylon as slaves. A handful were left behind, and these eventually wound up in Egypt with the prophet Jeremiah. And thus, the exile happened. The worst calamity in the Old Testament, prophesied nearly a thousand years earlier. A calamity predicted in the law, warned about by the prophets, and recorded in the historical books. Now, I've given you a lot of history. What should we take from this? Four truths, I think. First, friends, learn that God is just. We learned last week that God judges nations. God is not messing around with national sin. Every act of idolatry, every murder, every persecution of the righteous is observed by God, and he will avenge it. God destroyed his chosen nation. 
if this is how God deals with the people who are his own possession, what will God do to the nations that don't belong to him? Friends, God's justice is a terrifying thing, nationally and individually. God will not overlook sin. All sin in the end will be judged. Either it will be judged on us, or it has already been judged on the person of Jesus who bears our sin. The choice is ours. Will we uh, accept Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, or will we arrogantly reject it and allow God's judgment to fall on us when it didn't need to? Friends, I would tell you God's justice and his wrath are real. And we see that in these horrendous depictions of the sieges of Jerusalem. Friends, experiencing God's wrath is worse than we can imagine. God is fearsomely just. But, second, while God is just, he's also patient and merciful. Israel and Judah had evil king after evil king. And how did God respond? He didn't just crush them like a bug the first time out. He sent them prophet after prophet, saying, Turn back! Turn back! Why will you die, O Israel? God patiently called on his people to repent. He stayed his hand of justice. He delayed bringing destruction, even during the godly time of King Josiah, even up to the last minute, as we just heard from, from the prophet Jeremiah. God was abundantly patient. God is slow to anger, and he is quick to forgive and to restore. And even after unleashing his wrath, notice that God again positioned prophets among each of his scattered people groups to make sure that his people were still being ministered to. Among the elites in Babylon, he placed the annual. Among the normal exiled people, he had Ezekiel. And those taking refuge in Egypt had Jeremiah. God continued to tend to his people after Jerusalem fell. Friends, God's grace and mercy are great. Don't hear about the horrors of exile and blame God. God warned his people what would happen if they continued in sin. Just like he warns people today, he has set before us the way of life and the way of death. It's not God's fault when we reject his olive branch because we love our own sin. And the calamity of judgment is due to the impenitence of the wicked. It's not a failure of God's grace or mercy. And that brings us to our third application, which is this, friends. God is faithful to his word. We often rejoice that God is faithful to his word when we think about his great and precious promises, his willingness to forgive when we confess our sins, our great hope in the promise of the new creation, the promise of reunion with believers who have died before us. And we want God to be faithful to these promises. And he will be, because God stands by his word. He never lies. But friends, God is not only faithful to the parts of his word that we like. God means what he says when he threatens justice as well. God warned Judah about exile a thousand years before it happened. He gave fair warning, and he gave repeated warnings. And when they were, these warnings were rejected, God made good on his word. Everything he said came absolutely true down to the tiniest detail. And it's the same today, friends. God means what he says when he warns about the consequences of sin in the New Testament as well. He's warned us about the, the prospect of eternal condemnation for over 2,000 years. Now, in recent times, many false teachers today have tried to soften the doctrine of God's wrath. They have tried to eliminate the doctrine of hell. But friends, God means what he says. We may not like it, but our dislike of God's word doesn't make it any less true or any less just. 
God means what he says, and he will do what he warns. And so, friends, we must trust Christ, or else we one day will collide with the horrendous wrath of God. And that leads us to our final application here. Trust Christ, not the things of this world. Over and over again, the kings of Judah thought the solution to their problems was to be found in the world of politics. They trusted Assyria, or Egypt, or Babylon, and at every time it blew up in their face. It wound up entangling them with the world, and those entanglements brought calamity. Friends, God's people need to put their trust in the Lord, not in men and not in politics. In every crisis that we face, God is our only sure and certain hope. Friends, we've got to stop imagining that we're going to get good and godly outcomes from playing the world's games. We need to put our faith in the Lord. But the Israelites didn't trust God. They rebelled. And so they went into exile in Babylon. And the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 25, 11, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. 70 years were decreed for the exile. And we'll say more about that in a few weeks. So that's what the Old Testament says about exile. Let's conclude now by seeing what the New Testament says about this same concept. And we'll begin by looking at two passages from the book of 1 Peter, beginning in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Here in the first verse, Peter says he is writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Who are these exiles? Well, some folks claim that these exiles are Jewish Christians who were scattered throughout the Mediterranean world in the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem that we just studied. But let's listen to how Peter describes his audience throughout his book and see if that rings true. 1 Peter 1.14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Former ignorance. That's an odd phrase to use in Peter's writing to Jews. The Jews weren't ignorant of God or his holiness. 1 Peter 1.18, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. The futile ways inherited from your forefathers. If Peter's audience was Jewish, he couldn't say that. Their forefathers were the patriarchs who lived not lives of futility, but lives of faith. 1 Peter 2.10 Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. It would make no sense for Peter to say to a Jewish audience, once you were not a people. The Jews had been a people for 1,500 years by the time Peter wrote those words. No, friends, all of these verses make more sense if Peter's writing not to Jews, but to converted Gentiles who had been ignorant, whose pagan religions were futile, and who were not one unified people as the Jews had been one unified people. The evidence indicates that Peter's audience is primarily Gentile. So why does Peter speak of Gentile converts being exiled? Well, this is not the exile of judgment that we just studied. Rather, this is a theologically pregnant statement about what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ's deity, death, and resurrection. Friend, as a believer, you have been elected or chosen by God, just like Abraham was, just like the nation of Israel was. You were chosen. That's why you believed. And as you came to faith, something happened. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. You used to belong to this world, but you've been given a transfer. Now you belong to the kingdom of Christ. Your citizenship used to be here. 
But now Philippians 3 says our citizenship is in heaven. You've got a change of national identity. But while you've been transferred and while you have a new citizenship, believer, you still live here in this world, in this country. But now you're a stranger. You're an exile. You're a pilgrim. You live here, but this world is no longer your home because now you belong to God. Your salvation makes you an exile. Now note that this is fundamentally different from what we saw in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, exile was a judgment from God upon unbelieving Israelites. Because Israel unrepentantly sinned, they lost their home and their land. But in the New Testament, being in exile is the present condition of the saved, of the blessed. Because we have been chosen by God. Because we have come to Christ, now we have gained a new home. We've gained a better home, a better land, which is where we truly belong. Where we will fit in and dwell for eternity. A home that we've not lost, but a home at which we have not yet arrived. Unlike Peter's audience, we believers are scattered throughout this world. But we all belong to one kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. So we are elect exiles who have been scattered. And as exiles in this world, we necessarily will find ourselves always feeling out of place. There should be a disconnect between how our culture sees things and how we see things. We will seem strange to unbelievers around us. Our unbelieving family members and friends won't understand why we pray or why we read the Bible. They don't understand why we take some of the stands that we do or why we abstain from some of the things that they revel in, why we have hope in the face of death. Our outlook on life is strange to unbelievers. It's strange to our culture. At least it ought to be. That's what Peter expects. And because Peter expects that, he expects something else too. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter says, again, believer, you're in exile, separated from your true home. And now Peter tells us what exile in this life is like. This world is not content to have exiles in it. This world wants to win us over to its way of thinking. It wants us to conform to its pattern. As Phillips famously said, it wants to squeeze us into its mold. And so the culture whispers to us, holiness doesn't matter. Be who you want to be. Live how you want to live. Don't care about others. Live for yourself. Follow your heart. He who dies with the most toys wins. That's what our society tells us, right? Embrace the lusts of your flesh. Give in to them. But Peter says, be careful. The world wants to wage war on your soul. The culture means to trip you into following the lusts of the flesh, to bend you to the culture's values, attitudes, and methods. And he says, resist. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Conform yourself to God's will and God's word, not to the will and false word of our culture. Now, at this point, some of us may feel confused. We may say, well, I don't feel like an exile. I don't feel uncomfortable here. I fit in. And I would say to you, if that's the case, you should be worried. Maybe you fit in because you've never come to Christ. You fit in because you're still a part of the world. Or maybe you fit in, even if you've come to Christ, because you have conformed yourself to its way of thinking. You haven't lived out the faith that you claim to hold in any meaningful way. That's why the world hasn't waged war on you. Didn't need to. You already surrendered. Friends, if you see things like the culture around us does, 
Examine yourself to see if you're really in the faith. And if you conclude that you are, that you really have rep repentantly entrusted yourself to Jesus, then ask yourself, what am I doing that blends in so well with the unbelievers around me? Where have I failed to obey Christ? Where have I failed to walk in holiness? Where have I failed to maintain a gospel witness? Pray that God would show you where you've capitulated and that he would lead you to repent. But I would say that for others of us who are listening to this, I think the challenge of this message is a bit different. Some of us will have a hard time with the idea that this culture is not our home. Because there is a persistent myth among many American Christians which undermines the truth that 1 Peter is teaching us. And this is the myth of the good old days. Particularly for us, it is the myth that America used to be a virtuous Christian nation, which only in very recent times deserted its Christian heritage. But friends, I must tell you that that myth is false. There is no such thing as a Christian nation because Christianity is not a political philosophy. Christianity is not a set of family values or social issues that we want to see enacted. Christianity is about calling every person to repentant faith in the deity, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is not something that you can enact nationally. That is not something that the framers wrote into our country's governing documents. Yes, yes, I'm sure that our nation was doubtless influenced by principles that in some way were derived from the Bible. I wouldn't deny that. But our nation is not built upon the foundation of the gospel. No nation is. Because remember what Jesus told Pontius Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. The only nation that God ever established and chose was ancient Israel. Not the U.S. or any other country. Our nation and our culture, just like every other nation and culture, is simply one more extension of what the Bible calls the world system. Every culture on the globe is running in a direction contrary to the gospel. Every society on this planet is urging its people to conform themselves to sinful patterns of rebellion. Now, these patterns of rebellion may look different. The anti-gospel message of the culture of Saudi Arabia looks different than the anti-gospel message of the culture of China or of the United States. But make no mistake, every culture's core message is anti-gospel. And why is that? Because there is one intelligence who stands behind all of the cultures of this world and who is playing the tune that every society dances to. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that Satan is functionally the god of this world. He is directing the rebellion of the world system in every culture, including ours. And he always has been. And that's why, Christian friend, you're never really going to fit in here. And if you move to some other country, you're not going to fit in there either. You will meet resistance in every society on this world if you're a Christian. Because every society is rebelling against the lordship of Jesus. And so, friends, this nation and this world are not our home. While we're here, we're just passing through. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't care about our nation or our society? Not at all. In the book of Jeremiah, when the Jews were going into exile, Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 29.7, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Friends, when our society benefits, we benefit. When our society turns away from particular courses of evil, that's a great thing. 
Care about America. Care about Houston. Pray for our leaders. Be a good citizen. Vote. Do what you can to improve things here. Those are Christian things to do. But never forget that we're exiles. Never forget that there's a limit on how comfortable we ever will be on this side of heaven. Because our true citizenship is elsewhere. It's in a destination at which we have not yet arrived. Like Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11. We are strangers and exiles on the earth because we desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Friends, we're not exiles because we've lost our home. We're exiles because we recognize that this world is not our home and we are awaiting the home which is to come. Hebrews 11.10 tells us it is the city whose designer and builder is God. It's the new Jerusalem. So friends like Abraham, look forward. Look past this fallen and broken world and look ahead to the inheritance which will soon be ours. And be encouraged because in that place there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sin, and no more death. There we will be well and truly home in glory forever. And so believing friends, don't take your eyes off that promise because that's the real prize. The prize is not this world. The prize is not political power in America. The prize is not the American dream. Don't cling to the things of this world. Don't worship what the world worships. Money, sex, fame, power, education, or leisure. Don't let this world deceive you into thinking that only the things that we can see matter. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold because this isn't your home believer. You belong to God. Your true home awaits. Long for that home. Live for that home. And as you do, you will face hardship in this world. But you won't meet it alone because the Lord will be with you. So today we've seen how the Bible talks about exile in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We've learned about God's justice and mercy, his faithfulness to his word. We've seen that this world is not our home. There's a new and better world, which is. And friends, that's even better than the promised land that was promised to Israel in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Israel had to obey the law to secure the land. For us, Jesus has already secured the promise which is to come. It is not in peril if we know him. Friends, this world is not our home. A better world is coming. And friends, we can look forward to that. So we are exiles here. But that's a blessed condition on this side of the cross. Not like it was for poor ancient Israel who rebelled and sinned terribly against the Lord. Now, beginning next week, we're going to begin to look at the book of Daniel. And there we're going to learn from godly people in exile how we who are also exiles may faithfully live and navigate, uh, living as strangers in a strange land. So I look forward to opening Daniel chapter 1 with you next week. Let's conclude now.